back to From the Press Box, the Holland Sentinel Sports Staff's weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything sports. I'm sports editor Dan Diadana, alongside Bo Troutman, our assistant sports editor, as we continue our remote access podcast from the safety of our own homes during this coronavirus oh, yeah. uh, quarantine. Um, we've brought to you some, the last couple weeks, some interesting and fun uh, at least fun for us. I hope it was fun for you guys. Uh, discussions about our favorite athletes, our favorite moments as fans, our favorite moments we've been uh, as reporters. And uh, today we're going to talk about our the top ten moments in sports that resonate with us, uh, that stick with us, that impacted us. And this is in history. This is not just talking about during our lifetime. So we will be talking about some moments that we felt was that we felt were really pivotal. Um, to history of sports, um, so uh, should be pretty good. I mean, Bo, I, I, you're still healthy, right? I'm still healthy, as far as I can tell. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a sliding scale, of course. Um, yeah. But if the if the only crazy we're going is stir crazy during this time, I would say that we're winning, um, even if it doesn't seem like it. Uh, yeah. I can't wait to get back out and cover some sports. But uh, yeah, here we'll uh, we'll get right into it and talk about. Um, We'll do our top 10 um, moments in sports history. Um, and again, this is very um, subjective and very, you know, we're picking off some of our uh, moments that resonate with us personally as well as um, in some of the sports we like. So be prepared that mine will be more baseball than Bo's will be um, and his will be more football than mine is. And uh, we'll give you a good balance of fun and also impact, lasting impactful um, sports moments. So. Um, and if you if you feel we there is one we glaringly omitted, or one that you think is uh, is your the most impactful for you, feel free to email us at sports at hollandcentral.com and we will definitely uh, you know have a little conversation because uh, you know that's the beauty of sports. Everything uh, things resonate differently with different people, um, and uh, it creates for good discussions and debates, um, which is something we really need right now in this world is uh you know the, and that's why we love doing what we're doing bo is do we get to talk about sports instead of politics or uh i mean we have to talk a little bit about the virus you know and everything but uh mm -hmm. it's a nice uh break almost break from reality uh even though sports is reality except for at the moment so right um but uh yeah i'm gonna get right into it with my top 10 um and then bo will do his top 10 um there's some great ones in both lists, so uh, stick with us if you gotta go. Feel free to, you know, pause it and come back and listen later or whatever. Um, there's plenty of good stuff here that we're gonna talk about. So um, I'll get right into it with number ten for me. Um, I moved these this ranking around about ten times uh, as we were preparing for this. So um, you know, some things that I think are nine or ten, I might think is you know two or three on another day, but we'll see which means that's a pretty good list if I'm thinking that way. So um, we're going to start with November 2nd, 2016, when the Cubs won their first World Series since 1908. Um, that was obviously huge for baseball because the Cubs are such a storied franchise, um, one, of the, you know, one of these signature franchises in baseball. Um, but also, I mean, just for people that didn't, I mean, people that don't aren't even super baseball fans, they paid attention to this. They understood how big of a deal this was uh, that the Cubs finally won the World Series. I mean, they hadn't even been to the World Series since 1945. They had this lovable losers uh, mentality.
mental not mentality the team did, but the fans did. Wrigley Field is like the best ballpark around, so they're just like, hey, we're going to Wrigley. It's great. It doesn't matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but to not be in a World Series at all since 1945, they lost the Tigers in 1945. They also lost to the Tigers in 1935. Um, and beat the Tigers in 1907 and 1908, the two uh, two years that they actually won the World Series. So they had a lot of history against the Tigers in the, in the World Series, which is interesting. I kind of yeah. thought they were going to have to go through them again to break the curse. But, uh, right. um, but I mean, think of all the things that have happened. You had the whole Bartman thing in 2003 where they were a few outs away from making the World Series and then the fan interference and, and all the aftermath with that, which I still don't blame him because... The three people around him were also reaching for that ball, and if um, Moises Salou, the left fielder, didn't react so upset, uh, maybe it wouldn't have had a lasting impact on anybody. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you think of guys like Ernie Banks, uh, Billy Williams, Ron Santo, Fergie Jenkins. I mean, that's four Hall of Famers on one team. They never made it to the World Series. Um, it, they're just, I mean, then you had the teams in the 80s that almost made the World Series, and then uh, 1984. Lee Smith, the best closer in the National League, gave up the game-tying home run in the postseason that let that opened the floodgates for the Padres' comeback, and then they faced the Tigers. See, that could have been their chance to beat the Tigers and get that going in 1984, but it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had some great teams in the 80s with Ryan Sandberg and Andre Dawson. It just never happened. And you got these young kids in 2016 that just were able to not worry about the mentality of not winning for over a hundred years because they were just, most of them were pretty new to the big leagues and it was just a big fun group of young kids Mm -hmm. that just went out and had fun. And of course, uh, Joe Madden, the manager was huge and integral in keeping those young kids, uh, with a young kids mentality. Uh, but it was, it was nuts. I mean, I remember watching every, Every inning of that, um, I will say as a Cub fan, I had I was in the online lottery for World Series tickets in 2003 when the Bartman thing happened, and I had World Series tickets to Game 5 at Wrigley Field that never happened. So, Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh <laughs> which is awful. <laughs> but uh, just want, being a Cubs fan for so long, I mean, Andre Dawson was my favorite player, started watching the Cubs in 87. Um there's just from then there's such a storied history with them making the postseason at different times but never getting close enough but then when you think any team that's an original team of you know a major sport to go 108 years without winning mm-hmm. is insanity it's, it's and insane. so that's my number 10 they finally won they beat Cleveland which also Cleveland hadn't won hasn't won since 1948 so mm-hmm. which now is the longest streak by far but it still was almost only half you know what i mean like yeah. and that's insane in itself um and that world series is so exciting going down to the seventh game and with an extra inning and rain delays uh in game seven and then you know blowing a lead and coming back and still winning um it was it was it was bigger than just baseball because you know all of Chicago you know one of the, you know the second city as they call it I mean as people call it they don't call it that they don't like that they don't like being number two to New York mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's a whole long time of hope for Cub fans um, 
I'm guessing the Detroit Lions fans can commiserate because it's going to be something real similar, I would guess, mm-hmm. um, as the years go by there. Uh, but just the iconic ballpark, the iconic team, the iconic moment, and the iconic drought all combined to one to end in 2016. So that's my number. That's my number 10. Um, I'm going to stick with baseball for number nine. Uh, a, a little known one. This is not going to be one that a lot of people know. Um, most of the rest of them people have heard about or know. But in September 1st, 1971, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates went out, the, uh, played their game uh, uh, with a lineup of all non white players. Mm-hmm. So they had all black and Hispanic players in the lineup, including the pitcher. So uh, that's the first and possibly I believe it's still the only time that that happened for a whole game um, where every single player um, was of color and this is a team that prided itself in their uh, African American and Latino uh, you know uh, I don't know if style's the right word but culture um, this is a team that had Roberto Clemente the greatest and most important Latino player in the history of baseball and then they had Willie Stargell, uh, who was African-American uh, and one of the best power hitters in the game. And then also went on to lead them to the 79 World Series title with the We Are Family Pirates, where he became the only player. This is the trivia question for Bo here. The only player to win the regular season playoff and World Series MVPs in the same year. Talk about putting somebody on your back. That's crazy. Um, and so they were the leaders um, on that team. But the rest of the starting lineup... Um, they were uh, outfielders, the corner outfielders. Um, second baseman, uh, Rennie Stinnett. Center fielder, Gene Kleins. Right uh, right fielder was Clemente. Left fielder was Stargell. Manny Sanguian was the catcher. Dave Cash was the third baseman. The first baseman was Al Oliver. Shortstop was Jackie Hernandez. And Doc Ellis was the pitcher. So um, it was something that just materialized. It was not something... Uh, the manager was white, Danny Murtaugh. He had... Uh, did not really talk about doing this with the players. He didn't even make a big deal. He just was putting in, you know, the best players uh, that he felt were the best for that day. Um, re- they're all regular players, but a lot of them platooned a little bit. So, um, but the famous line is that Al Oliver, um, who was a you know great player, batting champion, uh, he didn't. They didn't realize it till a couple innings into the game, and he said. Uh, his nickname was Scoop, and uh, he said that after the third inning, Dave Cash uh, came up to him and said, "Hey, Scoop, we got all brothers out here," <laughs> um, which is uh, which is really cool. I mean, I think it's it's iconic. It became iconic because it was the first time that it ever happened in baseball um, and in sports other than basketball. That's really never happened because of the sheer amount of people. I mean, there's not that many. Uh, hockey players of color but football there's so many people you can't really keep track of that and it's almost impossible to do um but i mean obviously basketball with five five people in the starting lineup it's a lot different Mm. and easier and obviously there's more african-american players who play basketball um but i i I love the fact that no one really knew they just kind of did it you know it wasn't this hey we're going to make this statement uh, historical statement because obviously you know there's plenty of historical statements in sports they just kind of put the lineup together and played and didn't even realize it themselves until the middle of the game and to me that is fantastic that's what makes it even more special because it was 
it wasn't unintended. I mean, it wasn't intended as a big statement. It was a, it just happened to be, hey, our best guys for today are all of color. You know, like it should be. You know what I mean? Like, if that's the case, if whoever's better is better. You know what I mean? It shouldn't have to, you know, you know, race is an issue so many times, and we'll talk about this more in some of these other moments, but it shouldn't have to be that way. You know what I mean? Whoever's the best, the best. There it is, the end, you know, and that's really cool. And that set, I mean, that was, I mean, when they got Clemente, when the Pirates got Clemente and they started getting all of these uh, star players, I mean, they had white stars, they had black stars, Hispanic stars, you know, you name it, they had uh, everything. And it continued, I mean, after, this was even before uh, MVP Dave Parker, who's African-American, came onto the team in 1975 and uh, continued that. And then four-time batting champion Bill Madlock, uh, who was African American uh, came came up in '74, and well, he was sorry, he came up in '74, got traded to the Pirates later on. So I mean, and then you then that cycles into the the later on in uh, the late '90s. You had uh, the late '80s and early '90s. Barry Bonds was on that team. Bobby Bonilla was on that team. Um, and then you know their most recent MVP just a few years ago, Andrew McCutcheon, also African American. So it also signifies and reflects Pittsburgh as well. You know, this this long history they've had. And, and it makes sense. Pittsburgh was the biggest and best town in the Negro Leagues. At one point, there were three awesome contending Negro League teams in Pittsburgh at the same time. Can you imagine the Yankees, Red Sox, and, and uh, you know, and well, the Braves all being in the same town? Like, yeah. it's 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 crazy. So, so that, to me, that's kind of like my underappreciated and unheralded uh, uh, date in history. Um, all right, and I'm switching off of baseball, everybody, for the next couple, so um, <laughs> you, you'll hear me talk about a different sport here. So um, my number eight, March 26, 1979, this is the NCAA Final Four Finals Magic versus Bird. This was so monumental for so many reasons. First of all, it was the first time we saw Magic versus Bird, which in itself is fantastic. But at the, the, you know, the elite of the college, March Madness, which is always exciting anyway, um, you've got the the two stars, they, they complement each other so well. I mean, you know, Magic Johnson was African-American, Larry Bird was white, Magic Johnson's super outgoing, Larry Bird's a little more reserved. They got along together, they were rivals, but they were, the respect was there. And this um, this transformed basketball because you know you knew this was the the only time you're going to see them on the college stage, you know, in the Final Four stage together. Mm-hmm. And then they took that to the NBA and each led a dynasty for the next decade, where they were each in the finals four or five times in the next you know eleven years, and they played each other a bunch, which was epic but they instantly became the stars and leaders and they ushered in a new era in the NBA. This became the era that led to up to the dream team. I mean, every team had stars. Every team was good. You got into, you know, the, the, the late eighties, especially into, you know, the nineties, you, you're, you're talking about the Lakers and the Celtics, but also the bad boy Pistons, the start of Michael Jordan's dynasty. And I mean, you had you during that time in the NBA, you have, this is what I always go to. If you put Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, 
James Worthy, Dominique Wilkinson, Hakeem Olajuwon, and a starting five. That's one of the best starting fives ever. Th- those five were not even on the Dream Team. Now, Hakeem Olajuwon was not on the Dream Team because he's not from the United States. But these are first five first ballot Hall of Famer players that played at the same time as the Dream Team and didn't make the team. Mm-hmm. That's how good the NBA was <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Like... Uh, and that's that's kind of insane. So, mm-hmm. but it all started with Magic versus Bird, um, and you know, uh, and that Michigan State versus Indiana State uh, game that Magic got the better of, and then they went on to take this rivalry into the NBA, and it was the even though it was a college game, it was the flashpoint for the golden era beginning in the NBA um, because the it was. It was crazy, and and you also get the generations too. You like they came into the NBA right after this. You still had Dr. J, you know, and Moses Malone, and guys like this that were um, elite players throughout the '70s, and then they crossed over and kind of passed the torch to Magic and Bird. But man, can you imagine high socks, short shorts, Magic versus Bird in a Final Four now? I mean, geez, like it just sounds. <laughs> Uh, it just sounds so long ago, even though, you know, it wasn't in the grand scheme of things that long ago. But mm-hmm. uh, that that's uh, for me was my number eight, because that, like I said, it was a transcendent moment in college basketball and the NBA at the same time. So mm-hmm. um, that's my number eight. Uh, number seven, October 16th, 1968. This is at the Olympics when uh, track runners. John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their uh, raised their fist uh, after uh, taking um, gold and silver uh, at the Olympics in um, at the Olympics in uh, Mexico City. Excuse me, I was having a brain fart there. Um, there's obviously the iconic picture of them with their the black glove, the raised raised fists. I mean, we're still at an era, you know, where you know. Uh, I mean, you know, we're at the end of the Martin Luther King time and we still had so many racial problems in the United States. Um, and just this, I mean, everyone knows this image, you know, even if they don't know the full story, they know this, the picture of them with the raise their fist. They also didn't have any shoes on because they were protesting, um, you know, that, they, that was a, uh, representation of, uh, the hunger issues going on in the world, um, and so they 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 this was the original like national anthem protest here, um, where they you know they were there they raised their fists, um, stood for the anthem, uh, for for equality. I mean they weren't you know racism in our country is still an issue today. I mean it was still an issue then, and uh, you don't have too many you don't have too many moments like this in sports. I mean, until Kaepernick, really, you know what I mean? Like this was, this was iconic and it was earth shattering because people are like, what in the world are they doing? You know? And then they got in so much trouble for this, you know, their, their, most of their careers were pretty much done. They got, you know, blacklisted from the Olympics for a time after this, they, you know, it was the country turned on them before realizing the historical significance later you know, they have been embraced as um, activists. Um, but the, the interesting part of this is uh, the third guy who won, uh, or they won, sorry, excuse me, they won gold and 
Uh, they won gold and bronze. This guy from Australia, Peter Norman, was from yeah. He was from Australia. He won silver, and he he knew what they were doing. They had talked to him about it. He also didn't wear shoes. He did not put his arm up, his fist up in Black Power, um, mostly because you know he's not he's not black. But at the same time, that would have been a, a whole other gesture. But he uh, he stood with them. He wore the pin. Um, a, a pin that they uh, a civil rights pin that they um, that they were wearing and he got a lot of flack in um, when he went back to Australia he I mean, ended his career too because uh, they couldn't believe that he was supporting you know these black guys from the United States um, when basically all they were standing up for was equality and you know making sure everybody uh could eat around the world you know these are two things that you don't think about being things that would ruin careers and lives but uh uh, to me that's the most astounding thing about this is at that time in the heat of you know racial tensions in the united states you have this white guy from australia that's like yeah i'll wear your pin on the podium yeah and went up with no shoes too and he got more flack than the U.S. guys did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it started, I mean, there's not that many, you know, there wasn't that much politics in sports. They tried to, people tried to keep that separate for so long. I mean, obviously you had things like Jackie Robinson and, you know, things like that, but like, and um, Muhammad Ali, you know, not wanting to fight in Vietnam. Uh, but for the most part, people kept those things separate. And for this to be right there, world TV, not even national TV, in everyone's face in the world was a huge statement. And, um, you know, again, the 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 lasting image and impression of that is much different than how people took it at the time. Um, but it was it was groundbreaking and it was um, it was one of the most important moments in Olympic history um, and in U.S. sports history. So that's my number seven. Um, number six, we're sticking with the Olympics. Uh, 2008 when Michael Phelps won eight gold medals in the same Olympics to break Mark Mark Spitz's record Um, he won the 200 freestyle, the 100 butterfly the 200 butterfly, the 200 IM the 400 IM and then was on the 4x1 and 4x2 freestyle relays and the 4x1 medley relay Um, only one of those eight did not set a world record Wow. Seven of the eight races were a world record, and that his, his 100 butterfly was an Olympic record. Mm. That's insane. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so it wasn't even just that he won. It's not like he won during a slow period in history, you know, or something right, like that. Right, right. Like, and, like, I mean, like and, and just, I mean, the coverage of it, obviously, he tried in 2004 and got six. Uh, six goals and then you know he needed to, uh, seven was how many spits had and then the the lead up to it everybody was as uh, eyes were on this and there's the iconic moments that in that uh, butterfly where he kind of took the half stroke uh, at the very end to win by like a hundredth of a second and then in the in the four by 100 relay the iconic moment didn't even have anything to do with him except it kept his eight goals intact but his teammate Jason Lezak chased down France. He was a couple body lengths away 
they were they were at least a body length behind. And in the last lap, he chased down um, Alain Bernard from France, and they won uh, in this epic comeback of a relay. And those two m- moments in themselves are so iconic with how they finished. But you you know wrap them up into an eight gold performance. You know, making him as, at least as far as performance based the greatest Olympian of all time. Mm-hmm. That's insane. <laughs> that, yeah. That's that. There's so many layers to that. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and then you know, obviously he's you know he was in the 2000 Olympics as a little teenager. You know, in 2000 uh, he won his first medal. Then in 2004 he won the uh, the six, and then he won the eight in 2008, and then he came back and. 2012, 2016, he just kept going and uh, and kept winning, uh, and it's just incredible, uh, incredible, and really, you know, kind of pushed swimming, even over track and field, and gymnastics for quite a while now, as as far as the the most um, the most watched Olympic uh, sport is uh, has he transformed that from, you know, what was track and field and gymnastics to now swimming with also you know taking that lead slightly over uh mm-hmm. over those so um and just these races these are these are i mean his his olympic moments are happening at the same time that bolt's olympic moments were happening on the track and simone biles in gymnastics i mean it just it was also part of like a you know a golden era for olympic legends almost i mean we don't think of it now as legends because they're now you know but in a, in a hundred years, they're still going to be talking about those three and what they did, mm-hmm. and that they were all at the same time, which is pretty awesome. So, oh yeah, um, that's my next one. Uh, number five, April eighth, nineteen seventy four, uh, is when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's career home run record. Um, he uh, he tied it on opening day, and then when they played their first home series, he broke the record. Can you imagine being Hank Aaron? being two homers away from breaking Babe Ruth's record all winter oh, the year before. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he was 34 away or 12 away. Right. It was two, two away. Yeah. I mean, that could easily happen <laughs> in one game. You know, which, so, um, and then, so he hit that home run at in Atlanta at home off Al Downing of the Dodgers. And... Uh, also uh, African American, so that had a little bit of significance there because we're because of all the racism that Hank Aaron dealt with that whole winter and the whole year year or two leading up to breaking Babe Ruth's record. He was getting death threats uh, and just all kinds of horrible things in something that should be this magical run to a record, you know, that we would think of now. Right. Um, he actually says until the moment happened. I mean, that whole year leading up to it was the worst year of his life. Seriously? Oh why? God. Yeah. Why should that be the worst year of somebody's life? That should be the best. It's so horrible that you know he's got bodyguards everywhere he goes. Everybody was just you know. Jeez, oh, Pete. Yeah. yeah, they just didn't couldn't stand that that somebody black was going to beat the most hallowed record in sports, and uh, uh, you know, and then you know. Then you got all these, you know, a lot of columnists would come out and say, well, Babe Ruth was still better because he did it in fewer at-bats, so his average of home runs was more and all this kind of stuff. But it didn't matter. Hank Aaron broke a record that no one thought was going to be broken. And even though his has since been broken 
in uh, I'm going to say a little bit tainted fashion with Barry Bonds. Yeah. Um, no one thought this was possible, and the fact that he wasn't hitting 50 home runs a year, that he was only his highest was like he never even hit. Uh, I think more than like he only hit 40 more, a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just slow and steady did it and lasted so long that he was able to break this record, hitting 37 home runs every year. Makes it even more remarkable. Oh yeah. And uh, my favorite Hank Aaron stat I will throw in there too is so he had 755 home runs. Uh, and he had 3,771 hits. So if you want to know how good of a player he was, if you take away all 755 of his home runs, he still had 3,000 hits. Yeah. Which is insane. So, um, so, and that was just such a transcendent moment that he broke the record, but also was a huge, became a huge racial barrier. And just imagine the weight off of his shoulders in general, if you don't even have to deal with the racism part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, cemented his legacy. Not that he even needed that moment to cement his legacy as one of the greatest players of all time. But um, but learning about everything that he dealt with, you know, it, it, it elevates his legendary status as an athlete uh, in general just for overcoming everything that he did, dealing with everything that he did, and, um, you know, being able to knock the ball out of the park more than Babe Ruth, which is still still hard to believe that anyone did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's my number five. Number four, February twenty second, nineteen eighty, the miracle on ice. Um, this is, uh, I mean, there's you know obviously been a movie about this now too, and it's, um, you know, we're at the uh, forty year anniversary of it. Uh, U.S. beating Russia in the semifinals of the 1980 Olympics in hockey. Um, the Russians seemingly hadn't lost ever <laughs> um, in, in international hockey, um, which is a, a slight exaggeration, but they were the most dominant team by far. And the U.S. coach, Herb Brooks, want, didn't want all the superstars of hockey or the best players, he wanted to find a team that had chemistry and put it together. Um, Mike Rizzioni as the captain, Jim Craig as the goalie, and a lot of players on that team that most people don't know their names. And they, you know, as this the Cold War, Cold War was in its, you know, at its pinnacle, and they had just invaded Afghanistan. Uh, Russia had and. You were dealing with all the, you know, um, all the communist issues that that comes with that. Um, that we still deal with a little bit today, but not not like we did then. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it globally, I mean, and it was just this David and Goliath moment that had so much more to do than it did with just hockey. I mean, it was. It was the United. It was the United States giving a crushing blow to the Soviet Union um, on the biggest stage in the world, in their best sport or event of any kind in the world, and with all the heated politics and you know the the um, the U.S. had just boycotted the Summer Olympics the mm-hmm. same year, or would the same year. Um, and 
the fact that they they didn't because they were hosting uh you know made this moment possible and just this little ragamuffin almost seeming team with no real star power took down the greatest international team in the history of hockey um mm-hmm. and then won the gold medal match as well um but just something no one thought was possible at all um if you haven't seen that movie miracle check it out it's mm-hmm. a uh, there's documentaries out on this too. It's just it's just an amazing moment in uh, in American sports, and everyone that lived at that time, from who I know at least, they all know, were watching. It was such a big deal. You know, people knew how big of a deal this was, athletically and politically, and it was the Olympics. Um, but just how big of a deal this was, and again, no one, almost everyone on that U.S. team is an unknown name to people. Um, even, I mean, even me as a sports guy, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, having hockey cards of these guys at the end of the eighties when they were, you know, done, basically their careers were mostly over. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's, there's very few players on the team. I'm like, oh yeah, that guy, you know, that to me makes it even better because you had some of the best Russian players in history on this team, uh, that their job was to be on this international team. That was their job. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, and then the, obviously the classic call by Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, so that's, uh, that's my number four. Um, I have a tandem for number three because uh, they both kind of have the same overtone. Um, but it's in 1936, the Olympics, uh, Jesse Owens winning uh, four golds in Berlin. And then in ninth, June twenty, that's and then June twenty second, nineteen thirty eight, uh, boxer Joe Lewis knocking out German Max Schmeling, and uh, we'll talk about Jesse Owens first. Um, obviously, you know at his time, the probably the best athlete in the world, and Hitler had had risen to power in the Olympics, and here he is, and, you know, and he's with his Aryan supremacy agenda and everything, and. Jesse Owens just calmly showed the entire world that that's not true. Yeah. You know, he just, I mean, with military all over the place and Hitler in the stands, knowing what Hitler stood for, and he just went out and won four gold medals, won everything he did. Mm-hmm. Like, right in Hitler's face. And I don't mean right in Hitler's face like you would say, you know, in somebody's face, whatever. He literally was just about right in Hitler's face. Yeah. I mean, they were that close. Um, and to do that, there had to, can you imagine the fear? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, who knows? Like, do you think Hitler really cared? I mean, this is somebody who started invading every country he could get to after this. Do you think he really would have cared if he created an international incident by mm-hmm. having Jesse Owens killed during the Olympics? Do you think he really would have cared? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have messed up, maybe messed up his plans for domination because it would have, you know, showed his hand a little early. You know what I mean? But, like, I can't imagine. I'd be, I can't imagine Jesse Owens being able to handle it, mm-hmm. let alone win everything right in his face. I'd be scared out of my mind. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, so, and then the hardest part is Jesse Owens, and he talked about this, uh, you know, the rest of his life, is... That victory was so significant in the face of racism and white supremacy 
and Nazi, you know, Germany and everything like that, he came home and he had to sit in the back of the bus. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is 1936. Yeah. He came home and had nothing. Yeah. He, I mean, Martin Luther King is still 30 years after this, uh, a little less, 25 years after this. That's 25 years is a long time. Quarter of a century, it's, yeah. It's still 11 years before Jackie Robinson. Right. So he came back and did nothing. <laughs> Which it is so awful. He, he had to try to make ends meet. He was he was racing like at Negro League games and Major League games, racing against a horse on the field to make some money. Oh, my gosh. I mean, like, he just, it's just, was something that he could never get over. And I'll tie this in with Joe Lewis here, too. Joe Lewis, same thing. Um, African-American boxer knocks out German Max Schmeling. And a couple years before, in 1935, Schmeling beat Joe Lewis. And it was like this stunning victory uh, for Schmeling. You know, Joe Lewis was the best boxer in the world at this point. And then, you know, you get to this rematch with all the... You know, we're, we're two years even past Jesse Owens now, and we're, this is, you know, World War II is happening in other places. I mean, the U.S. hadn't joined yet, but it started. Mm-hmm. And here he is facing this German, and Joe Lewis knocked him out really early in the fight. I mean, it was like one of those inspired moments of sports. He was so inspired. He had to do this. He had to do this for his race, for his country, for everything, and he did. And... The the amazing thing is same thing for him. Joe Lewis, he comes, you know, he I mean he did this. He, it's not like he was in Nazi Germany doing this, but he so he so what does he do now? So then he goes, you know, then he's still stuck in you know Jim Crow America and segregation, and you know dealing with racism after you know becoming the best boxer in the entire world and knocking out somebody from Germany at this point. And there's a great book. If you are looking for a book, if anyone's looking for a book to read, there's a book that's called, it's a double biography of Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis, and it ties their friendship in and everything else, and it's called Heroes Without a Country, How America Turned Its Back on Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis. It is one of the best books I've ever read. And it is just stunning how, I mean, we don't think of it now, we're so far removed from this, but can you imagine? I mean, this is what happened to any black soldier in World War II. You come back, and then you're dealing with, you know, just as much racism and and hate in our own country. Right. It's unbelievable. And up to this, that I have a little mini story I have to tell about. So Max Schmeling was German, but he was not a Nazi. People just assumed, oh, he's German, so he's a Nazi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Schmeling, the, the the coolest thing that came out of this, especially with so many bad things coming out of not bad things coming out of them winning, it was huge. And this, both of those moments could have been my number one had they actually directly led to change, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis became friends. Really? Mm-hmm. They were friends. And they they formed one of the most un, unimaginable bonds. Now again, this is you know this is somebody who's who was German but not a Nazi, um, which so much of the country was. You know what I mean? They were just in fear 
and being controlled. But, like, so they had this great friendship that went on to later in life. And Max Schmeling only died, like, 10 years ago. He was, like, almost 100. Um, but Joe Lewis died quite a few years ago. And Joe Lewis, because same thing, once his career was over, and you think about it, I mean, boxers made a lot of money for the time. But as inflation and growth in the United States went, just imagine how broke he was mm-hmm. not having boxed for years and not, not being able to do anything because nobody's given him a job. Right. Uh, Max Schmeling paid for his funeral, paid for Joe Lewis's funeral. Oh, my gosh. Like... That is this unbelievable bond that started with them. They each beat each other once in the ring. And, I mean, Max Schmeling went on to say, I mean, he, like I said, he was a German. He couldn't stand what was going on either. He, there was like the one time in his life or any boxer's life where he was thrilled that he got beat. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't throw the fight. He didn't want to get beat. But looking back on it. I'm right, saying. right. He, he was yeah. he was not upset that he lost the heavyweight championship um, because it was such a big deal. So, anyway, so that's my number three. I never um, knew all that. That's really interesting. I knew about obviously, you know, the main thing about Jesse Owens, you know, kind of defying Hitler and all that, and you know, winning in Germany. I didn't know all the rest of that stuff and all, all that cool stuff about Joe Lewis and all that. Man, that's yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, there's just so much. You just you just can't imagine coming home after any of that stuff to worse situations than you are when you're in other countries. Almost, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so. Um, all right. So my number two, September twentieth, nineteen seventy-three, the battle of the sexes on the tennis court. Billy Jean King against Bobby Riggs. That's just become a major motion picture in the last couple of years too, which was uh, really good if you haven't seen it. Um, but this was the start of gender equity in sports. It did not happen right away. Um, but Billie Jean King was the Jackie Robinson of gender equity. And uh, she fought for women's rights in sports and just women's rights. And, you know, in the United States, uh, she beat Bobby Riggs, who used to be the number one player in the world. I, he was a little bit... Uh, you know, it wasn't like he was 20 years old. He was a mostly retired player at this point, but he kept challenging her. He was this great um, showman of a tennis player, um, especially in his later days. And and no one thought that she could win. You know, we're talking about a a man versus a woman, and especially at the time, um, it it was groundbreaking that she won. And then she also sacrificed so much after this to make sure that there was a women's tennis association so they weren't getting genderly segregated for from the ATP, the uh, uh, Association of Tennis Professionals, which is what run the men's tour still to this day. And now we have uh, you know, play, uh, players like Federer and Nadal and some of the best players in the game today are saying, can we finally put these two together? Mm-hmm. You know the the so it's not you run the men's circuit, you run the women's circuit, but they all do most of the same events anyway. You know what I mean, right? Like, um, which is cool. And Djokovic, I mean, it's cool that they're speaking out about this um, because it's, it's it's probably going to happen now. It's been a long time coming, but so so this this started, you know, women's liberation in sports. I mean, this was in the seventies when you know you know women were fighting to have the same 
rights and the same treatment in the workplace. Um, they were fighting for that before this too, but this is when that fight really started to, you know, to really pick up some steam finally. And then that was just a nationally televised event that everyone that everyone was watching because it was such a big deal. And, you know, think about TV in 1973. What else was on? You know what I mean? Like they put sports on when there was nothing else on. And they put TV shows on when there's nothing else on. There weren't very many networks. You know what I mean? This was, this mm-hmm. is not, you know, hundreds of channels time here. This is like six channels time. Right. So everyone's right. watching this. And it just, it just started everything. And, and it, and it made tennis, it eventually made tennis the leader, the leading sport in uh, gender equity, even if it wasn't uh, because of the, even if it was, by having two governing bodies of of tennis, but right now, if Serena Williams wins Wimbledon and Federer wins Wimbledon, they get the same money. Mm, that's cool. That's awesome. And that's not the case in a lot of things. Mm. Um, so that that I mean, now granted, there's great a great amount of stars in tennis, men's and women's too. So it makes a lot of sense. And you go there, you watch men's and women's matches and everything like that. But it's still. Um, in 1973, this was such a long way off that it, this just kind of was so groundbreaking that it started this uh, revolution in sports that needed to happen. And, I mean, that's not even talking at all about what she did for uh, people of other sexual orientation. Billie Jean King is gay, um, a lesbian. She's, you know, and that was, and that came out, that was part of the movie, and that was such a big deal uh, as a big part of her life, her coming out and raising awareness that way. So she is an iconic figure in women's and sexual orientation liberation, basically, which is unbelievable that one person could be in charge of. That's why the you. Um, that's why the entire complex of the U.S. Open tennis facility is called the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, mm-hmm. and she still speaks out. Uh, for equality today and is a, is a big part of what's going on in um, in sports today still and uh, but that all started when she beat Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes in 1973 um, an event like no other before or since really so um, that's my number two um, and my number one only I mean number two could easily be number one number, number one for me is Jackie Robinson April 15th 1947 uh, because that was so much before, and it started all this change. Women's uh, sports equity could not happen until racial equity started to happen. You know what I mean? The, the steps are in place. Um, so Jackie Robinson kind of started all of the equality in sports. I mean, uh, Bo, did you know he was not the first black player in the major leagues? Um, no, I didn't actually. Who was Moses Fleetwood Walker in 1887. I've never heard that name. <laughs> and his brother Welday Walker was the second in 1887. Really? And so he he was not the first black player in the major leagues. He was the first to break the color barrier once the barrier was put in place. Oh, I so, see. So, um, but I mean, nothing. Think about everything in here in my list too, and just in sports, mm-hmm. there was nothing. I mean, Joe Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis were the only star athletes known the same way and Jack Johnson back in the 1890s was a boxer known uh-huh. in the white world at all uh-huh. no one in, in you know in 
like people knew who Satchel Paige was and Josh Gibson, the, who played in the Negro Leagues, but it wasn't the same kind of global thing. When Jackie Robinson changed all of that in sports, and it started, you know, it started baseball getting more racial equity, and then it started, it started every revolution in sports started because of, after this. And so April 15th, 1947, he played first base. Um, and, I mean, he played mostly second base in his career, but that day he played first base, and that season he played a lot of first base. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just amazing what he had to deal with in 1947. This is right after World War II, and he's, you know, same as Hank Aaron, getting death threats, being called every name in the book, um, getting spiked by opposing teams, people, uh, opposing pitchers thrown at his head, um, the Philadelphia Phillies manager, you know, just had a couple of tirades at him with all sort of epithet-laced comments uh, that ended up being, you know, uh, that ended up actually kind of ha- helping Jackie's teammates stick up for him, you know, uh, in the long run. It was kind of, uh, which was obviously important too, but. Uh, Everything started. Jackie Robinson, you're talking almost 20 years before Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And this is real change happening. Now, it should have started with Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis or even before that. But this is when it happened. It was Major League Baseball. And in 1947, no one cared about football, basketball mm-hmm. or basketball. You know, hockey was only in a couple of northern spots. Uh, baseball was it. You know, the biggest thing that sports writers covered back then was the World Series, the heavyweight boxing match, and the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. So this is this was this was, uh, and he came into the, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, who were a contending team mm-hmm. with a lot of young guys that ended up being stars and Hall of Famers. And one of you know the Boys of Summer with you know all the books and everything written about them, one of the most storied teams of all time. And so he came in. I mean. It, it'd be like if Jesse Owens all of a sudden, you know, in today's world, it's like, you know, became LeBron, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or something like that. I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, right. that's probably mm-hmm. a really poor way of describing it, but mm-hmm. he, he became the story in the biggest sport in the world, in the biggest market in the world, in New York city. I mean, you just can imagine the impact that that had. Oh, um, yeah. And obviously it did. I mean, it started the desegregation in, uh, you know, in throughout baseball, in other sports, and, um, you know, just people knew who black players were after this. I mean, mm-hmm. outside of maybe Satchel Paige, who got a lot of headlines for all his barnstorming around the country and, and you know, all the the amazing and crazy things he did, people didn't realize he was probably the best pitcher in the history of the game, too. They just knew he was a show. And everybody before that, you just they just aren't remembered the way they should. And now and everybody since, you know, kinda got to that point. And a thing that a lot of people forget, July tenth, eight nineteen forty seven, just a couple uh two months later, a couple months later, Larry Doby integrated the American League on the Cleveland Indians. And the next year they won the World Series, the last time Cleveland won the World Series. Mm-hmm. And actually Satchel Page was like a forty year old rookie on that forty eight team. Of Cleveland Indians, also, so the floodgates started now, and and everyone realized that hey, 
these these black guys can play and they're winning the World Series. Jackie Robinson came in in 1947. They were in the World Series. They lost to the Yankees, but they were in the World Series that year. The next year, Cleveland won with Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. And then you're, the Brooklyn Dodgers added Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, some other black stars, and they were in the World Series like five of the next seven years. Mm-hmm. So people also recognized that it wasn't just we're bringing a black guy in to bring a black guy. These, these players were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like I said, it's since it started every basically every sports revolution since uh, as far as race, uh, language barriers, you know, pe- international issues, everything, everything stemmed from this one moment that changed the game and changed our world because there's never been anything like this in the country with the big, the big professional sports, that was the moment. I mean, think about it. Like, do you know who the first uh, black hockey player was? Um, no, I don't. I mean, his, his name was Willie O'Ree, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have the same, you know what I mean? There's no, like, association. The same, yeah. the, the first, I mean, the first African-Americans to play in the NFL was before Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. But the NFL was nothing mm-hmm. like it was once we got to the 60s. Or even the late 50s, you know what I mean? Yeah. So this was it. This was the moment. Um, And obviously he became one of the most important Americans in history. I mean, sports or non-sports. I mean, you're talking about somebody who was in the military. He also set the national record in the broad jump and played in the Rose Bowl for UCLA football. Mm -hmm. I mean, baseball was was probably his worst sport. But he had the most significant moment in the history of sports, uh, nonetheless. Even though it was like his third or fourth best sport, he played everything else, too. Mm-hmm. So um, so there's my 10, um, my long-winded 10. Sorry about that, Bo. Um, so, yeah, if you feel free to drop me an email at sports at hollandcentral.com if you agree, disagree, want to talk about some other important moments, go for it. Um, and I'm going to let Bo go for it with his uh, with his moments right now. Take it away with your number 10, Bo. All righty. Well, coming in at number 10, um, I wanted to stay kind of topical. And uh, I'm sure, uh, like many sports fans right now, people are watching uh, The Last Dance about the you know, the last uh, Bulls championship with Michael Jordan. And uh, so for number 10, I put the 1998 uh, NBA Finals. I mean, that documentary is one of the coolest. I mean, sports or not, uh, just one of the coolest documentaries I've ever seen. I haven't even finished it yet. I'm only like four episodes in, and I'm like blown away so far. And uh, yeah, I mean, just seeing how. I mean, there's so much I don't know because you know, obviously, in 1998, I was only three years old, and like, right. so like, there's so much I'm learning about. Just like you know, I didn't know who Jerry Krause was. Uh, I didn't know that Scottie Pippen, you know, got signed to this bad deal and, like, all this stuff. And Dennis Rodman, there's stuff, I think, you know, things I didn't know about him. And, like, um, you know, just learning how they really came together uh, for that last season. You know, just learning about that uh, as a sports fan is, is really, uh, really interesting. So uh, I thought I'd leave my list off with that. You know, I thought it was very appropriate uh, since that is going on right now. Yeah, very topical of you. Oh, yeah. And uh, let's see here. I got my list a little bit mixed up. Oh, yeah, number nine. Um, 
Coming at number nine, another 1990s event. Uh, that also, I was not even born yet when this happened, but um, it's actually a pretty big deal um, with my family, both sides of my family, actually. Um, February 11th, 1990, uh, Buster Douglas upsets Mike Tyson. Uh, you know, this epic, you know, upset in boxing lore history. You know, Mike Tyson was his beast, this unbeatable guy. It's, you know, it's straight out of Rocky. I mean, then here comes Buster Douglas from Columbus, Ohio. Um, you know, beats up on Mike Tyson and wins, uh, miraculously. Um, and it's big in my family because, one, my my dad's whole side of the family is from Columbus, Ohio, so there's an obvious association there. You know, the local guy beat the, right. you know, the king of the world. And then, um, also, though, my, um, so we have this aunt, her name's, uh, we're, we're not related, um, her name's Mildred Lambert. She, uh, Worked with my mom at uh, Sears way back in the day. I mean, I'm talking way back. And uh, we call her Aunt Mildred, uh, even though she's not. Um, but she's also from Columbus, Ohio. And she lives in uh, Tennessee now. But uh, she was friends with Buster Douglas, <laughs> surprisingly wow. enough. And I actually have a picture. It's in, I moved back to Michigan from Illinois. I used to have it displayed in my apartment. Um I have a picture of her that she sent me of her, you know, kind of holding hands with uh, Buster, or not holding hands, but, you know, they got their arms around each other, uh, Buster Douglas, you know, so it's her and him, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty That's cool. Awesome. And she actually had this vintage uh, Buster Douglas magazine that she gifted to me, because she knows I'm into sports and stuff, and uh, one of the last times I've, I've seen her, um, she had given me that, so I thought that was very cool. And uh, That's so cool. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know... Kind of got this little you know connection with Buster Douglas uh, is someone you know kind of in my close family. Um, you know, it's very important to her, and uh, you know she talks about how important that was too. Was, you know, she's an African American woman, and like you know she kind of grew up through all that nonsense with the you know the racism and stuff, and you know how big that was. What a cool thing that the local guy got it done. You know, and he kind of won it for Columbus, Ohio. You know, and like. Right. And, and this is kind of cool. Not that that fight was about race or anything, but it's just about you know this. It was cool, that, like you know, he won it for us. It's like it was what, how she kind of looks right. at it, you know. Well, and if it was a if it was a thing in Columbus, it still was a mm -hmm. even though he beat another black guy, it's still a big deal. Oh yeah, absolutely. So like, yeah, I always thought that was really cool, and like, you know, that 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 we kind of got that connection going there. So that's so awesome. Oh uh, yeah, I had to had to include that one for sure. Oh absolutely, yeah, that's a great story. Um. And then number seven, uh, moving a little bit closer. You know, I was alive for this, although I didn't see it live. Uh, January twenty second, two thousand six, was the day that Kobe Bryant dropped eighty one points um, on the vaunted uh, Toronto Raptors. Um, I've, I've watched that video of just showing all of his shots, like I think a hundred times by now. <laughs> and uh, I still don't know how he had that much time to shoot that many shots at all yeah it's amazing i mean he just literally was running down the court pulling up and making it every single time like it was <laughs> it was insane he just couldn't miss that was i mean i think he technically didn't have a very great field goal percentage because he put up so many shots but there were so many were like just in transition he just nailed the, these long three-pointers and stuff um yeah like i that's just amazing and, you know one of my if not my favorite basketball player of all time. Well, no, Ben Wallace holds that spot slot. But uh, my number two basketball player of all time is Kobe Bryant, for sure. Um, you know, that's just an amazing thing he did. Uh, and I, I'm i really curious of that. I mean, the NBA is different now, but, you know, the mid-2000s to me was still the hangover of, like, you know, good defense wins championships and all that, where now it's kind of very offense-oriented. Everything gets right. called, where I still think 
in the mid two thousands, you had pretty good officiating and tough teams like the Pistons were still that good, you know, that good core of you know, Tayshawn and Ben and all those guys. So, um, so yeah, that definitely had to make the top ten for me. Uh, and obviously too, just with you know Kobe kind of passing away. Keep the time, yeah. yeah. Um, moving on from that, at uh, I believe number this is my number seven, I think. Um, the nineteen ninety seven Masters. Uh, Tiger Woods' first major win that starts a pretty incredible journey uh, that is still going on to this day, fortunately. Uh, I think a lot of people thought it was over when all that weird stuff happened. Um, back with his wife, getting divorced from his wife, and all the family drama he had. But, uh, you know, uh, I watched that recently. You know, with the coronavirus, they've been replaying these golf tournaments. And the weekend of the Masters, they replayed the final round, the whole final round of the 1997 Masters. And, like, just seeing that. It was really cool, man. I'm really glad they did that. I didn't, you know, watch the whole thing or anything, but just to get a slice of history in that moment, you know, such an iconic moment, and young Tiger Woods, and he's my favorite golfer. I've actually been golfing a lot recently, um, and, you know, just every time I, I watch Tiger Woods in a major, man, it's like I'm texting my buddy, hey, man, want to go golfing this weekend? <laughs> you know, like, right. um, so, yeah, it's like he's had a big impact on me as a person, and, uh, you know, I think I think he's the greatest golfer of all time. Um I'm just hoping he gets uh keeps that going. You know, that was the first uh, major win, and he's still trying to catch Nicholas now. So uh, if he could do that, in my isn't life, that amazing? Man. Oh yeah, it's incredible. Like in my mind, it's it's amazing that he hasn't blown past everybody just based on how great he's been. Right. And it's not that he hasn't. It's just that that's how big the standard is from Nicholas. Like that's insane. Like you you don't. I I can't think of. I can't imagine anyone else dominating a sport for that long. Right. Yeah. No, it's truly incredible. Like it's, yeah, it's the the level of dominance. Yeah, it's like for that extended period of time, it's, it's unmatched. Really, only by a few guys, I would say. But, uh, and then yeah, then coming in at uh, number six here, we got uh, the two thousand four NBA Finals for obvious reasons. If you're a resident of the state of Michigan, um, the O four Pistons took down Kobe and Shaq. Really, kind of broke that up. Uh, both players, you know, or no, Shaq left the Lakers rather. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that, that cemented the 4 Pistons as one of the great defenses of all time. And Ben Wallace is immortalized as one of the greatest defensive players of all time in, uh, in the league. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just not much more to say. I mean, you know, they really took it to the, you know, Shaq and Kobe, which, you know, were a dynasty back then. And, and it's just amazing that that squad of kind of, not, not so much rejects, but just kind of like, you know, six men, you know, a bunch of six men, you know, it's like those guys were all like for other teams kind of like, you know, not really starters, you know. I still look back and I go, how did they score enough to win? I know how they stopped them enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chauncey Billups was great and, you know, his big shot, you know, Mr. Big Shot, but he couldn't score them all. I mean, Rip Hamilton did a lot of the dirty work offensively, Uh Um, but then they got, they had that trade for Rasheed Wallace in the mm-hmm. middle of that year. That was huge. As the, yeah. the playoffs push, and it changed everything because here's a big guy that could defend but could also shoot uh, from the outside as well as play inside. Mm-hmm. And it just changed the entire dynamic. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you look at the final scores of those games, they're all, or most of them anyway, are like in the 80s. And, you know, that's the kind of, that's the basketball I miss, man. I don't like the, you know, 130 to 120 final scores. You know, I like the... Right brutal, you know, 86-80 games, man. Like, you know, I wish that was still a thing. Um, 
But I think those days are kind of long gone, unfortunately. It'll come back again. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it does, man, because that that's basketball to me. You know, right? The toughness. The strategy. Yeah, no, that's the strategy what the, is an I shoot better than you. Yeah, that's not a strategy. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and like the last dance, um, they kind of talk. Dennis Rodman, the latest episode I watched, you know, he talks about that. He's like, nowadays, he just, he just like waves his hand, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, right. and they're showing, you know, Rodman and Bill Lambeer like battling in the paint and like, and the Jordan rules, you know, the 1989 oh, yeah, the Pistons. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and it worked. Yeah, it did. For, yeah, for that one year, it did, you know, and it's like, I miss that. That's basketball to me, not right. not what's on TV today, and that's right. why and not necessarily yeah. even the roughness of it, but mm-hmm. the the strategy of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not just like yeah. I mean, yeah. I do like a little bit more of how the. I mean, I'm not saying you know they did they went way further than I would be comfortable going today. <laughs> oh yeah. But but like that was that was so much part of the defensive scheme and how you how you uh, the Jordan rules were. You know, everybody's like, oh, it's how they knocked him down. No, it's about how they forced him to go one way and to bring a help defender. And then he basically ran into the defense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the game planning. But yeah, not, you know, how many pull-up 40-foot jumpers can I hit this game? You know, it's like, right. which there's nothing wrong with that. But when, it, when the whole league starts to try to emulate that, it's just right. like, come I mean, on, Steph man. Steph Curry is doing yeah. that every game. He has earned the right to do that every it's, game. It's his but thing. every yeah. team shouldn't be doing that every game. Right, because it's lazy. You know, because, yeah, you, yeah. Are you have this one, you know, anomaly guy who can do that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's greatness to me, to watch that. But, you know, everybody and their brother, you know, just pulling up from 50 feet out. All right, you know, didn't make that one, but hey, next possession, man, I'm going to shoot it again, you know, it's like, Right, uh. and Kobe played in that era, but he was the guy that could do it. Yeah. But not everybody else did it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree with There's you. more variety. Yeah. And then moving into the top five here, uh, this one I definitely had to include this one because I was there, <laughs> which is a big deal uh, to me anyway. Um June 13th, 2017, me and uh, former Holland Fennel intern Josh Pike were um, at Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids, and we witnessed uh, the Grand Rapids Griffins win a Calder Cup, uh, which is really amazing. We were there at, you know, at, I believe it was a Game 7, and we were there, and I got, still got the Snapchat story saved. Uh, yeah, you know, I took a, a video of, like, the final seconds ticking off the clock, and the, I mean, it was wild how loud it got. It was amazing. Like, just, it was a packed house, and... We had pretty good seats, and it was awesome um, to witness that, the trophy presentation after. Uh, whenever you, you know, I mean, I've only done it once, but, you know, well, I guess high school state championships, but, like, you know, a professional league championship, witnessing that in person, what's that? What's that's like? Uh, and I got to experience that, and it was pretty spectacular. Um, There's nothing like it. No, There's yeah. There's nothing like it. I mean, Chris was covering that game for us. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I went to, like, game one and two. And then Chris, uh, Chris covered the rest. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah super fun though. Oh yeah, it's nothing like the finals. I mean, I don't care what you're, what level you're talking about. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right, and like especially you know I love Grand Rapids. You know that's one of my favorite places on earth, man. But just I'm, I'm a big craft beer guy, and that's really big in Grand Rapids, uh, you know, Beer City, USA. And like you know, I went to college there, and like you know I hold a you know I had a lot of great times in Grand Rapids, man. And like. You know, to have like your your kind of city, you know, win it, you know, witnessing that, you know, it's it's just really really pretty cool. So not like I mean, like yeah. you don't get that very often. No, in the finals, yeah. right? Yeah, how into it they were for you know, 
not to diss the AHL, but it's still, you know, it's a minor league. It's not, you know, it's the NHL's the top dog, but like still, like the to see how how much that meant to those guys and a lot of those guys are on the Red Wings now. Like I know like Tyler Bertuzzi um is on the team and you know, it was a big deal, you know. So yeah, that was definitely had to make the top five. So Very cool. And then moving on to number four, um, this is an event I did not, or several events I did not witness. Uh, I have, uh, I'm not even going to try with the Roman numerals. I'm an idiot and didn't pay attention in school. So uh, we're going to, I'm just going to say the years. <laughs> uh, Super Bowl, uh, the 1977, 1981, and 1984 Super Bowls. Uh, those who don't know what those are, they're the Oakland Raiders uh, World Championships. Um one with John Madden, yeah, seriously. Two, two with Tom Flores, who, you know, I've read books on the, those eras and all those players. You know, Jim Plunkett, Ken Stabler, Fred Blitnikoff, uh, uh, Willie, Willie Brown. Sorry, I kind of threw a blank Lester there. Hayes. Yeah, Lester Hayes is a big one. Yeah, um, you know, Art Shell, all those guys, man, the, the bad boy, nineteen seventies Raiders, and then what kind of bled into the eighties was that same kind of group, but with Plunkett at quarterback and. Um, some other guys, Marcus Allen, obviously, when they decimated the Redskins, he had that insane run that they always show on, you know, NFL commercials. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, I love the Raiders, man. I, I love the whole mentality. Al Davis, just win baby, all that. And like, still waiting for him to return to glory. And I think it's going to be a long time. And I think it really is unfortunate they're in Las Vegas now. Um, you know, they should just be the Oakland Raiders and that's who they are. It's kind of part of their identity. And to see that kind of fall flat now is kind of sad, but um, they're you know they're a special team. I think you know there's only one silver and black man, and uh, yeah, well, a lot of people forget. Like people remember that that aren't even necessarily super super sports fans. Mm-hmm. They know about Dallas and the Steelers in the '70s and mm-hmm. the Packers before that, you know, and then they know about the 49ers and then the next wave of Dallas and whatever like that. People forget about the Raiders. Yeah. Like, they remember, they and they might remember, like, the mystique of the bad boy style Raiders, mm-hmm. but I don't think they people remember that they won those Super Bowls. Right. Yeah, they had like, like, I think that gets lost. And they had, like, iconic uh, moments, just like that are played on, you know, the NFL Films music was playing, and, like, you know, uh, the narrator, I forget his name, is it Steve Harry Sable? Callis. Or Harry Callis, yeah. Uh, yeah. As Sable was the creator, yeah. Um, I, I love, oh, I yeah. love Harry Cat. Oh yeah, <laughs> and Marcus Allen rumbled down to the twenty-four yard line. Right, yeah, <laughs> and like they had all those, you know, the ghosts to the post, the sea of hands, um, the uh, oh the Heidi game where they cut to the movie, that movie, and then they ended up coming back and winning, and like you know they have all these iconic moments, man. That I think also gets kind of lost on people. Uh, the stick them, you know, all the stuff they were doing, trying to, right. if you're not cheating, you're not trying, you know, and like, right. you know, that's great to me. So, yeah, that's why I love, that's why I fell in love with it, man, was those NFL films, like, you know, and like, honestly, I, got, I, I was born in California, so I kind of used that to kind of justify, you know, why aren't you a Lions fan? Well, <laughs> that was a conscious decision, <laughs> but that's right. a whole other, that's a whole other argument, but, uh. I felt like I wanted a chance to be happy. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, maybe I could look back on the good days of being happy, yeah, while being miserable, yeah, so. That's funny. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, then moving into the top three, uh, staying with the NFL, um, I've talked about this game on previous podcasts, because I think it's 
one of the greatest, if not uh, probably the greatest Super Bowl in my mind. Um, February 3, 2008, Eli Manning beats the 18-0 New England Patriots, uh, forever putting a dent on what was one of the greatest uh, NFL seasons of all time. Uh, obviously, you know, I've talked in previous podcasts, I jumped on the bandwagon, bought a Randy Moss jersey that got stolen one day, actually. Um, you know, it, it's... The tape, David Tyree catch, I mean, it's all right there. You know, everybody knows. I mean, that's in the, the NFL. It's like Tyree, Plaxico, you know, 18. And it's all those buzzwords about that game that, you know, that's what makes it so great. Uh, it's just, just really iconic ending to a really great football game. A really great season, I might add, too. So, for sure. Um, so, yeah, i got to go with that for number three. Um, and then rolling in at number two, my list is kind of jumbled up here. There it is. All right, number two. Um, uh, obvious, if people know me, uh, 2014, the inaugural uh, college football playoff, you know, getting rid of the BCS, which was freaking horrible <laughs> that everybody hated. Um, you know, they finally get a good playoff system in. One that Phil Steele, who, who I think is the greatest – um, preview writer of all time in sports media. Um, you know, he kind of was calling for a 14 playoff since the early 2000s and uh, finally got here, and it's just as great as everybody thought it would. And uh, my favorite freaking team of all time, across all sports, it transcends everything. It's they're my the team that I am into uh, that got me into sports writing, all that stuff. Um, you know, Ohio State, who didn't play particularly great that year. Uh, during the regular season, you know, they roll into the Big Ted, Big Ted Championship. Uh, JT Barrett's out with an injury. Uh, Cardell Jones comes in and just works his magic. We win 59 to nothing <laughs> over Wisconsin. After I was, I thought we were going to lose. You know, I thought seriously they might beat yeah, us. I was stunned that they was a, to nothing. And also stunned by, like, I'm not surprised necessarily looking back to even that Ohio State won, but Wisconsin was really good. Oh yeah, they they had uh, Melvin Gordon at running back, and you know he was a Heisman candidate that year. Yeah, and I remember we just like, I mean, just dominated. I mean, just I mean, there was this one hit. I think it was Joey Boza hit Melvin Gordon, and just the way he fumbled. I mean, just got jostled. I mean, just got wrecked and lost the ball. And it was a scoop and score. I mean, just made this Heisman candidate look like an FCS, <laughs> you know, throwaway. It was amazing. I mean, it was truly like I've never and, and from that season, you know, even though we go on to win the championship, that's still my favorite game out of that stretch. The, you know, you got that and then the Alabama game and the Oregon game. That championship game is st- still the number 1 to me because it was so shocking. It was so like what just happened? You know, and then we squeeze into the playoff. Everybody says we shouldn't be there. We beat Nick Saban in Alabama, and then we just throttle Mar- Marcus Mariota in, in Oregon. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, say what you want to Urban Meyer, but somehow he got those guys to wake up for those couple games, man. After a pretty lackluster regular season, to be honest, um, yeah, it, it was amazing. So, and I'll never forget it. Yeah, that's right up there, man. But. Uh, it doesn't quite crack number one. Uh, number one, I think, is even more important than a championship. Uh, number one is November twenty second, nineteen sixty nine, uh, as the start of the ten year war. Michigan, look at this, a Michigan win is my number one freaking wow. sports moment. Can you believe? Can, can we delete this podcast? Actually, <laughs> do you believe in miracles? Yeah, yeah. 
because you know what um to have a great rivalry you got to have a great opponent and uh Michigan upset Ohio State 24 to 12 uh Ohio State was 8-0 number one in the AP coaches poll um or AP and coaches poll rather um Michigan was had two losses and came in and won you know and it's a big upset Woody Hayes you know it started that Bo Schembechler Woody Hayes thing and then that's what really you know there was a rivalry before then but that's what really made it this legendary thing you know because then Archie Griffin comes along and all the great you know Michigan players that came along it's like you know it carried into this just amazing rivalry that I truly believe is the number one rivalry in all of sports I mean it just is. It just has everything you want. It has all the storybook, you know, little stories and moments, and uh, it just can't be topped, in my opinion. And I'm very fortunate that I've oh, grown up. Either. Yeah, it's like I, I'm very fortunate too that I've grown up in this era where <laughs> my favorite team was dominated <laughs> in that rivalry. I've I've never the only loss I've witnessed against Michigan because you know I wasn't in the sports when I was really young um, was. 2011, when after the sanctions hit against Terrell Pryor and some of those other players and Jim Tressel, um, you know, Luke Fickle was the coach for that weird year. You know, that's the really the only, and I don't even really count that one. You know, Michigan fans will say, oh, well, really, you don't count that? But I really kind of doubt. It was a weird year. But, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, I've been very fortunate to be, you know, because growing, and I grew up in, Mich- in Michigan too, which made it really unique for me taking abuse at school and you know we would lose right. games and I would still rock my Beanie Wells jersey you know on Monday and uh but you know they had nothing to say it's like they would talk crap to me all year and then once the Ohio State mission game man I would march into school just on just ready to go with every insult ready <laughs> you know ready and that's what made it great and that's what made it special to me is that you know this personal thing especially with people who live in Michigan and Ohio just had this thing. Whenever I went down to Ohio, too, or whenever I go down to Ohio, rather, but especially when I first got into football, it was always weird to me. Like, we'd stay at hotels, you know, while we're visiting family and stuff. And, you know, we'd go for games, and, you know, we'd be in the hotel, and there'd be people in the hallways, oh, H, I, oh, it's like, it was, like, weird. It was, like, on another planet. Like, this doesn't happen back home. <laughs> like, <laughs> where are all these people coming from? No, they're all, they're all wearing red, you know? So, like, or scarlet, excuse me. Yeah, I got to get that one right. But, uh, yeah, so that easily, leaps and bounds for me, is number one. Um, the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry is the most it's important. Awesome. Yeah, it's the most important thing in sports to me, uh, by far. So It's a good rivalry. Now, see, if you grew up, when I grew up, it was a little different. Right, it was the other <laughs> side of the spectrum, yeah. I mean, it was, it was back and forth at times, too, but <laughs> Michigan had a couple of pretty good stretches in there. Oh, yeah, um, especially the 90s. The yeah. Oh, yeah. Just about all the games were really good. Yeah, it came down to the end, you know, and it was, and it was, and it was awesome. Yeah, know? yeah, I'll never there's forget. Nothing, there is nothing like it because there's a, there is a respect, but there's also a hatred. Right. Yeah. Like genuine hatred. You can't, too. Yeah. There's there's rivals that hate each other but don't have the same respect, and there's mm-hmm. rivals that respect each other but don't have the same hatred. Mm-hmm. And right. then there's rivals that have all of that, like the Yankees, Red Sox. But until a few years ago, it was completely one-sided, mm-hmm. uh, where it was the Yankees all the time for like 75 years. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, which made their break in Babe Ruth's curse, which was not one of my top ones, but was still huge in 2004. But like, 
the and it's got the schools and the states. You know, it's it's adjoining states. It's not like on opposite sides of the city. You know what I mean? It's not like a city rivalry, even on opposite sides of the same state. It's border states that also is involving two of the biggest, baddest universities in the world, mm-hmm. and has the respect and hatred. Like there's there's so many levels that it right. doesn't have. Like the band, the marching bands have a rivalry. You know what I mean? Like. It's right. Not, yeah, they do. Like, yeah. They, that's not a. That's not a thing. Uh, in other places. It's, yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, that ten years war. That's when it really went from being a good rivalry to the best rivalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely, man. Good list. Yeah, good thanks. List. Yeah, they have both of us, man. I like it. Expand a lot of things there. Yeah. A lot of history. <laughs> a lot, yeah. A lot of history, and I love it. I mean, there's so many things that we didn't talk about that. Mm-hmm could be talked about you know I mean Babe Ruth's called shot in the World Series alleged called shot in the World Series that's a great one you know there's so Mm -hmm. many moments you know of of iconicness Mm -hmm. in there I mean we can talk about Will Chamberlain's 100 point game you know (laughs) right (laughs) or even Bill Russell and those Celtics and how uh, that was such a big deal I mean there's there's, that's the best part about sports there's so many Mm -hmm. there's so many Joe DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak Ted Williams batting 406 those both happened the same year 1941 mm-hmm. uh, you know there's so many things Brooklyn finding winning it in 1955 mm-hmm. only to move to Los Angeles two years later <laughs> right uh, yeah. and then just you know everything with the with every team every team has something mm-hmm. which is awesome yeah. so love sports loves me some sports absolutely <laughs> man can't wait for him to come back yeah that's right we'll add some more memories to this and uh, keep going so thanks for listening everybody uh, for our top 10 sports moments Uh, we'll come up with some more fun ideas to chat with you guys about in in the coming weeks but uh, stay healthy and stay safe and you know we're, we're turning a corner here we're getting closer we're getting closer so hang in there and we'll talk to you next week